ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. In a previous episode of ID the Future, we brought you into a meeting of the Cincinnati Dayton Apologetics Fellowship, which I co-lead, where I hosted a podcast recording with Jonathan McClatchy. Dr. McClatchy speaks and writes on intelligent design and a broad range of other topics related to the truth of Christianity, and he holds a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology and is assistant professor of microbiology at Sattler College. Dr. McClatchy stayed with the Apologetics Fellowship for a Q&A after that session via Zoom, and that Q&A session is today's episode. Two of the audience questions turned out to be difficult to hear on the recording, so I'll jump in at those points to summarize them. Jonathan, I don't know how long you have to hang on with this here. Do you want to hang around for a while? Sure, I can go for as long as you want. Okay. This is time to talk, yeah. Our first question came from someone who was seated too far from the mic to be heard. She asked about protein folds. They're so complex, and it's a very complex question about the nature of complexity and protein folds. And if a protein doesn't fold correctly, you have an interruption or a failure in the folding. What causes it to not get the right signals? Wondering if you could expand on that. And then again, later she asked about the nature of complexity. Sure. So there's been a number of papers published on the rarity of protein structures within combinatorial space. So there's 20 different amino acids that form biological proteins. So for a monster length protein of 150 amino acids, for example, then the, the number of possible arrangements of those amino acids would be 20 raised to the 150th power, right? So that's 20 times 20 times 20 times 20 times 20, all the way up to 150, uh, which is far more than the number of subatomic particles in the known universe, which is something like 10 to the 80. And we know that many of those are functional and form functional, stable protein structures. We also know many of them don't. And so the question that we can ask is, okay, of all those possibilities, what's the ratio of functional to non-functional? And the research that's been done on this suggests that it's astronomically small. So according to Doug Axe's famous estimate in 2004, in the Journal of Molecular Biology, for example, is something like 1 in 10 to the 74th power possible sequences actually form a stable and functional fold. And so that problem, of course, multiplies exponentially. When you require multiple protein components that have to be very carefully and specifically crafted to perform a job, such as the DNA replication machinery, for example, where it's not just any old protein that's going to perform the job of the DNA polymerase or the helicase or the topisomerase or what have you, but it has to be very carefully crafted to perform that task. When you say... I'm going to do some translation here. When you say 1 to 10 to the 74, this is not like you need to get a good good lottery drawing. This is like someone says, you need to choose the right star in the right galaxy and dive into that star and choose the right atom and the right proton the first try. Approximately that in order to match those odds. It's on that level, isn't it? Correct. What goes wrong in the protein falling or... Oh, so proteins, what determines a protein fold is the properties of the amino acids 
and in particular, their side chains. Uh, the side chains have different properties. Some are hydrophobic, some are hydrophilic, for example, or sometimes called polar versus nonpolar. The polar amino acids, which are hydrophilic ones, they like water, and they're called. That's why they're hydrophilic, and so they tend to face the exterior of the protein, whereas the hydrophobic ones they don't like water, and so they get they get buried in the protein's interior. And so there's different properties of amino acids like polar, nonpolar, there's charged and uncharged and so forth. And that determines how a protein folds. And so if you don't have the right sequence such that it forms a stable protein structure as a result of these non-covalent interactions that take place, like van der Waals and forces and hydrogen bonding and so forth, then the protein is not going to fold properly and you get a misfolded protein. And are, are there chaperone proteins that come shepherd that as well? Yeah, there are. So there are chaperone proteins that assist with the folding process. They don't themselves determine the protein folding structure, but they, they assist with the process. That sounds like another layer of irreducible complexity. Yeah. And the next question was also not clear enough to use for this recording, although other ones later on were, and it's about chaperone proteins, whether they may fold proteins into shapes or combinations that are not necessarily prions, yeah. stable. She's thinking of prions, which, and the question is about whether they are thermodynamically stable and what role chaperone proteins may have in making that happen or not happen. Yeah, so you mentioned prions. Uh, prions uh, are misfolded proteins that form aggregates, they're known as amyloid fibrils, um, and these have been uh, implicated in neurological diseases. And uh, yeah, so that, that's that's a major problem uh, when you have misfolded proteins. Jonathan, I teach college every class to high schoolers, and in Wikipedia, they, I think, do a good job of giving this big picture understanding of irreducible complexity, but they wrap it up by saying this, the concept of irreducible complexity has been rejected by the scientific community. So I wanted to see, is that accurate? And if so, why? Yeah, um, unfortunately, the reasons that are given for rejection of irreducible complexity are just not very good. And so I'm more interested in what the actual arguments are than who says what. Now, I sometimes get asked this question of why, if intelligent design is so overwhelmingly supported, why do so many, why, why do the majority of biologists reject it? And there's a number of factors here. One is that the vast majority of working biologists don't have a lot of expertise on evolution. They work on some problem uh, that has no relevance to evolution, and so they don't have much more than a basic or elementary understanding of evolution or biology. And then there's a small minority of biologists who actually do specialize in evolution, and they would be evolution or biologists. And of those, the vast majority of them haven't even studied the subject of intelligent design and don't even know the scientific criticisms of evolution. And of the small minority of evolutionary biologists who are specialists who do understand the criticisms of evolution and yet still reject the arguments, their responses to those arguments are just terrible. So I'm uh, more interested in what the actual science uh, suggests. There's also arguably ideological biases that color people's judgment when it comes to these things. Um, you might have heard of the Richard Lewontin famous quote about not allowing a divine foot in the door and this, that predisposes him to reject explanations that support a theistic contention. In fact, the Big Bang cosmological model back in the 20th century was fiercely and hotly opposed for much of the 20th century because of its profoundly 
theistically friendly implications. And uh, later, um, as the evidence began to pile in, scientists reluctantly uh, embraced the fact that the universe seems to have had a beginning, even though it, it, it points that direction. But I think it would have been embraced far earlier had it not been far more consistent with a broadly theistic outlook. So there, these are some factors that I think uh, influence this. In terms of actual objections scientifically to Erdogan's book complexity, so one is the idea of exaptation or co-option, which is to say that you, you could borrow proteins that were once performing one task that then get reassigned to performing another task. There's a number of problems with that. For one, you have to have protein-protein binding complementarity. Um, so if the interfaces aren't compatible, then that's problematic. Many of these systems also, like, like the um, flagellar motor, for example, self-assembles. You have to have very carefully choreographed assembly instructions. You have to have uh, what's called a transcriptional hierarchy, where you have the genes on the chromosomes that pertain to that transcriptional hierarchy so that you get the proteins being expressed in the right order. And in the case of uh, DNA replication or the other example I gave earlier with bacterial cell division, that option doesn't really exist anyway, because if you reduce it, you have a dead organism. <laughs> so it's not that you could get by without a mechanism for replicating yourself. There has to be a certain minimal level of complexity there. Um, so this is why I call irreducible complexity and bacterial cell division examples of irreducible complexity on steroids, because the problem is far more exacerbated with those examples, because you can't even begin to start appealing to some sort of co-option or acceptation model. Another objection to irreducible complexity is the one I mentioned earlier, that you might have systems where there's a different organism where you have the same system, but you're missing certain components. And so the argument is, well, nature's done the experiments and you don't have these components in these other organisms, so they can't be essential in this one. And that, I think, is easily refutable by um, conceptualizing the idea of vertical complexity along the lines that I suggested, where you're thinking about functional components rather than the actual identity. Uh, for example, um, in Nick Matsky and Mark Palin's 2006 paper in the journal Nature, where they criticize aerodynamic complexity, one of the examples they give is that the bacterial flagellar motor in, in gram-positive bacteria lacks the components of the LP ring in the flagellar motor, which forms the, the inner membrane. But what they don't mention is that in, so in gram-positive bacteria, they only have a single membrane. So it's, it's completely expected that they wouldn't need the components to embed the flagellum within the inner membrane because there just is no inner membrane in gram-positive bacteria, unlike gram-negative bacteria that have two membranes. So basically all of the examples that are given fail along those lines. So hopefully that's a comprehensive answer there. You mentioned Richard Lewan. I'm going to read that quote. He was a professor at where? At Harvard, actually, uh, I believe. Yeah. Uh, he wrote in 1997 in a, in a book review, our willingness to accept quote, scientific claims that are against common sense. Now, he's admitting it's against common sense. Common sense says that there's design behind nature. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding of the real struggle between science, quote, and the supernatural, quote. He thinks there's a warfare. By the way, the history on the warfare between science and religion is 99.8% a crock written by people who, in the 19th century, who intended it to be a crop that says that there's a warfare. Anyway, okay, the struggle between science and supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of, this is in italics, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for 
unsubstantiated, just-so stories because we have a prior commitment to materialism, naturalism, the belief that nothing exists except for what science can study, essentially. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are forced by our a priori from the very beginning, from the start, adherence to materialism to work in this sense. I'm, I'm going to summarize that part. He says, our materialism is absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. In Discover Magazine in 2008, they were talking about how did this all happen? Maybe the explanation for us having such an incredibly life-friendly universe is that there are many, 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 perhaps infinite numbers of universes. We happen to be in the one that where it works. They call this a multiverse theory. They quoted a guy named Bernard Carr, not Carter. There's a Carter, too, who said, if you don't want God, you'd better have a multiverse. And I read that and I thought, thank you. You said that so clearly. That's why we have this. That's me jumping in here. But next. Uh, so you talked about issues for issues that design and its inferences from biology and the problems that it has for naturalistic evolution. But it's, it's not clear to me right away the problem for evolution, qua evolution. Like, why, why doesn't theistic evolution help things? Because advocating for intelligent design in contrast to evolution. So I was wondering if you could talk to that. Yeah, I mean, different people have different definitions of what theistic evolution is. Uh, typically, what people mean by theistic evolution is that God used a naturalistic process to account for the complexity and diversity of life on Earth. And the argument that I'm presenting here is that it's not sufficient. The natural processes alone cannot do the job. The arguments I'm putting forward here don't have any bearing at all on the hypothesis of universal common descent. Uh, universal common descent could be completely true, and my argument still holds. So that, that's often an equivocation that's unfortunately made. I happen to be skeptical on, for other reasons, of the proposition of universal common descent, but this wouldn't be one of those reasons. There's four different common definitions of evolution. You just named one of them. Could you, as to which ones make sense and which don't? Yeah, I mean, there, there's various aspects of evolution. So you have natural selection, of course, which preserves the successful combinations of gene variants. Uh, you have genetic mutations, uh, which are typically understood to be random, although not by everyone. But classically, they're understood to be random, meaning that they occur without respect to the organism's fitness. You have the idea of, of universal common descent, the idea that all organisms are descended from common ancestors. And if, uh, if you wind the table of life sufficiently far back, eventually you come to a single universal progenitor of all life on Earth today. So you and the giraffe and the bacteria um, in your gut and the fungus growing in the back of your foot are all descended from common ancestors. And then and these the idea of gradualism, uh, which is that life evolves very slowly over millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of years. It's not that uh, you have a chimpanzee giving birth to a human one day. No, it's a very slow and gradual, imperceptible process. And then, of course, the idea of speciation, that new species emerge um, over the history of life and so forth. And that's accomplished by various mechanisms. Uh, sometimes you have a population that gets separated from a subpopulation and perhaps there's geographical barriers established or something like that. And then over time, 
they uh, evolve and diverge from one another, uh, forming separate species such that if you were to bring them back together, they would no longer be able to interbreed to produce fertile offspring. So the, these are some of the different aspects of evolution. The, the key points that I would challenge as a design proponent would be the idea of random genetic mutation or the sufficiency of random genetic mutation, the idea of um, gradualism. I would also challenge the the idea of universal common descent, because as I said, the argument for universal complexity holds irrespective of whether common descent is true. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently working on a paper comparing the literal 24-hour translation of Genesis to the day-age theory, which um, essentially, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with it, essentially says that the, the term day is referring to periods of time, ages of time, and not a literal 24-hour day. Based on what you know from your field, would you, which would you be more inclined to, to lean towards? And do you have any resources for either of those theories? Sure. So I am uh, very staunchly a defender of an old earth perspective. I think the scientific evidence is overwhelmingly confirmatory of an old earth perspective. And I don't think the Genesis text commits you to a young earth perspective. So um, in terms of the science, quickly, um, I, I think that, I mean, as I said before, I'm a Bayesian. The way that I understand evidence... I jump in there. Bayes is in the name of a way of looking at statistics and probability. So Bayesian means that he's using that approach to it. Right. So when it comes to, like, there, let's take a, an example of a problem for young Earth creationism, which would be the distant starlight problem, that there is starlight that reaches our eyes from distant galaxies that might be millions or hundreds of millions of light years away. And light years in astronomy is not a measure of time, it's a measure of distance. A, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. So it's, it's very surprising on the young Earth view that that would be the case. But it's not at all surprising on an old Earth view. Now, can you come up with some sort of explanation to account for that on a young Earth model or make it fit? Well, sure, you can. There has been various attempts, Jason Lyle, for example, or Russ Humphreys, or, um, and so forth. Uh, Danny Faulkner, but it doesn't detract from the fact or it doesn't re reduce the fact that um, it's still far less surprising on an older Earth perspective than it is on a young Earth perspective. And then you can look at some other observations, like the fact that there's this remarkable correlation between the dates that are yielded by the radiometric dating methods and the types of fossils you find in the strata. So, for example, give me rock from anywhere in the, any continent that say, Cambrian-era rock 500 million years ago, I can tell you with accuracy exactly what fossils you'll find and what you won't find. You'll find things like trilobites, anomalocaris, hallucigenia, wax, opabinia, and so forth. You're not going to find dolphins. So that, that very, very consistent correlation is something that's also very surprising in the young Earth view. Now, again, the older perspective, in my opinion, explains a lot of observations. Another example would be the meteor impacts with the, with the moon, right? We observe that there are various crater impacts on the moon. It seems very unlikely that they all happen in the space of only 6,000 years. Now, you can come up with an explanation to account for these on a young Earth view, but you have to scotch tape to gather a lot of independent auxiliary hypotheses to make it work. Whereas an old Earth perspective explains all of them with just one singular hypothesis for the most part. There might be some anomalous data here and there, but there's far less anomalous data than there is on a young Earth view. Now, in terms of the biblical text, first of all, I think that the first day of creation week begins not in verse 1 of Genesis 1, but begins in verse 3. So verse 1 and 2 say that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. And then verse three says, and God said, let there be light. Now, if you study the Genesis one text, you find that each of the days of creation week begins with the phrase, and God said, and God said, 
and God said, the implication being that the first day actually begins in verse three, by which time you already have the heavens and the earth in existence. So scripture is completely silent on the age of the earth and the universe. That's irrespective of what you think of the age of the biosphere. Now, in terms of the days of creation, the view that I take is most closely aligned with uh, Dr. C. John Collins. He is a Hebrew scholar. He's written a number of books on this subject, and I highly recommend his work. He has a commentary in the first four chapters of Genesis. He also has a book called Reading Genesis Well, and also another book called Science and Faith, Friends or Foes. And he argues, and I think he's right, that the days of creation are not identical to our earth solar days. Rather, they're analogous to the human rhythm of work and rest. So just as man has his six days that he labors in the Sabbath day of rest, so likewise God has his six days that he labors in his Sabbath day of rest. There's an analogy there rather than a one-to-one correspondence. And of course, there's a lot of other questions that one has to unpack, like the, the issue of, of death and the fall and things like that. And, and there, I'll, I'll address that one briefly because that's a very common point. So, so I, I agree that there was no human death before the fall. The point of contention is whether there was animal death. And one of the arguments that's typically used to support that there was no animal death prior to the fall is that God describes creation as, as good and very good at its culmination. And, and how can animal death be considered good? But good, I think, is being used here in a functional sense. So if you look, for example, in Genesis 2, God said, it is, it is not good that man be alone. And so he makes a helper fit for him. In other words, it's not good for man to be alone because he's not functioning properly without a helper. So when God describes creation as good, he means that it's functioning as he intended. Second Timothy 4.4, also Paul describes, he says, all things made by God are good. In other words, even to that point, even after the fall, things retain their good status. Another argument is uh, Isaiah 11, that talks about the, the, and the new creation, the wolf lying with the lamb, and, uh, um, and so forth, or the lion lying with the lamb. And so it, um, it's seen as uh, indicating that in the new creation, there's not going to be any animal death. And I, I don't think that that's what that text is getting at. I think that it's using that that sort of language uh, symbolically or allegorically. In the same way that Isaiah, Isaiah 2 speaks about the nations during the millennial reign beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's metaphorical. It's not that they're literally going to be doing that. It's, it's metaphorical for world peace. So I, I don't see any evidence in scripture that there was no animal death prior to the fall. So Romans 5.12 says that death came to all men because all men sinned. But it doesn't say anything about animals. And... Um, so, yeah, that's, that's basically in a nutshell what, what I think of that. Question, Jonathan. Imagine you are asked to go to an elementary school, speak to a group of elementary school children on career day. What do you say to them? What you're learning? What you're studying? What's the neatest thing about it and why they should go into it? <laughs> that's a good question. So I, I study biology, uh, which is the study of living organisms. I am convinced by the empirical data that life exhibits incredible evidence of design. I don't think you need a PhD to see that. I think it's very apparent from the manifest design characteristics and features of life. And yeah, so I study intelligent design, which is a, the study of patterns in nature, which bear the hallmarks of design. And there are molecular machines in the cell, information processing, storage retrieval apparatus in the cell that I think very clearly and decisively point in the direction of an intelligent agent being involved in life's origins on Earth. Final question. Suppose someone here has got a child, grandchild, nephew, niece, whatever, 
was considering going into university to study natural sciences as a Christian. What should they know about that on the way in, especially biology? That one's maybe even the toughest of them all. What should they know going in? What would you advise? What kinds of thoughts would you have for such a person? Yeah, I think biology is a great career to pursue. I would say to keep your cards close to the vest uh, when it comes to your intelligent design perspective, uh, because it can get you into some trouble doing so publicly. Uh, I actually had some trouble myself in that respect uh, with a dissertation supervisor during my second master's degree at Newcastle University. I was at the time doing a master's degree in uh, molecular microbiology, actually transitioned to doing it in medical molecular bioscience, uh, partly as a result of this incident. But I had a professor that I'd signed up to work with on bacterial flagella in Colobacter crescentis, which is a bacterium that inhabits fresh water. And I met with the professor. We set up a time to begin working in the lab and so forth. And it was all very cordial. And then I got an email few weeks before I was supposed to start by a representative of the dean of the graduate school who said that uh, the dean wanted to have a meeting with me. And he told me, the dean told me that my supervisor doesn't want to work with me because he's discovered horror of horrors that I think life is designed and that I need to find a new dissertation supervisor. I never brought this up with this guy. I, I never made a, a, a point of contention. And I said, well, why did why don't you bring in the supervisor to have a conversation with me so he can explain to me himself his reasons. And so they set up another meeting and this supervisor told me to my face that he could never work with anyone or he said he could never have anyone in his lab who took the view that life is designed, which is quite astonishing. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'd encourage you to keep your cards close to the vest if you want to go into this area. But there's certainly a lot of career prospects in the life sciences. And so if it's something that you're considering as a career, highly encourage it and, and recommend it. There's very rich uh, areas that you can explore and get into. You can work in the lab if you want to, or if that's not your thing. There's also bioinformatics opportunities for research where you can do all your research on a computer screen, or you can go into teaching and so forth. So there's a lot of opportunities for career prospects. That was Dr. Jonathan McClatchy fielding questions from members of the Cincinnati Dayton Area Apologetics Fellowship. For more on the Apologetics Fellowship, visit apologeticsfellowship.com. Org. And the fellowship is grateful to the Center for Science and Culture and to Dr. McClatchy for his visit with us there. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.